The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hey everyone, I remember the first time I saw an offshore wind farm. It was on a flight back to London from Portugal back in 2014. I was just sitting there, looking out the window at the sunset, and there it was. So impressive. It just went on for what seemed like forever, what looked like hundreds of turbines spinning quietly below. Well, turns out basically everything has changed in offshore wind since 2014. For one, the turbine's gotten a lot bigger, meaning more capacity per turbine, meaning fewer turbines with the same output. And two, the industry is really starting to take off. This year, BNF expects 10.6 gigawatts to come online globally, up 66% from last year, and the pipeline of new projects just keeps growing. Today on the show, we've got Imogen Brown and Chelsea Jean-Michel, offshore wind analysts for BNF. They'll tell us about what's driving growth in offshore wind, some of the challenges facing an adolescent industry, and who stands to gain from all of it. This episode is based on the offshore wind market outlook for the first half of 2021. BNF users can find this report on BNF Go, on the Bloomberg Terminal, BNF.com, and BNF Mobile. As a reminder, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, BNF Podcast. Imogen, Chelsea, welcome. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. Thanks for joining. You just mentioned this is your first time on the show. We're really glad to have you on. Excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Okay, Imogen, can you just start us off, you know, why offshore wind? We have wind uh, already onshore. Why do we need to put it offshore? So I think there's a few kind of key advantages for offshore wind that we really see. So one of the big ones is that offshore wind comes at scale. So when you're thinking about offshore wind, you're talking like gigawatt scale projects. So that's kind of a similar size to what you're talking when you're thinking about nuclear reactors, except in an offshore wind project, you don't have that nuclear waste angle. And offshore wind can be built much bigger because it's a sea. So there's kind of less space confinedness than you would have when you're building on land. At the same time, when you're building at sea, you can use much bigger turbines. So that's because you can't see them. So the typical biggest offshore wind turbine that we're seeing today is around 15 megawatts versus what you see onshore, which is around five. So they're about three times the size. They generate around three times the amount of power. So scale is kind of one of the biggest advantages. So the biggest advantage is that it's big. Exactly. It's just an assumption I have, I guess. It's just something in my in my mind, I guess, that it's windier out at sea. Is that true also? Yeah, definitely. That is true. So I guess if you were to take two like-for-like turbines, one onshore, one offshore, the one offshore would just spin more times during the year. Okay. Thereby producing more electricity. Exactly. On the show we put out on the 2nd of August called something like Energy Transition Fund Frenzy, I believe it was called, we mentioned that there's going to be just a ton of wind projects built in the next 30 years. We put it on the order of something like 68,000 wind projects, of which we think about 7,000 of those would be offshore wind. Basically, you know, that's Mark Taylor's back of the envelope calculations. But really, the point is that it's going to grow like crazy. So Imogen, can you keep it going and, and tell us kind of where we're at today and how big you think this market's going to get for offshore wind specifically? 
So where we are today, we're at around 36 gigawatts, which is the equivalent to around 8,000 turbines that are currently operating in the waters. Almost all of that is currently confined to Europe. But over the next sort of 10, 15 years or so, we expect the market to grow around 11-fold to reach over 400 gigs. So there's steep growth projected. And this scale is kind of twofold. So one is that we're expecting more markets to start building offshore wind. As I said, most of it's confined to Europe at the moment, but we're expecting markets in APAC and the Americas start to build offshore. And the second angle is that those are building it currently are just going to build more of it. So where will this growth start? You mentioned in your market outlook that you know this that we're basing this discussion on, you said, look, what, 10.7 gigawatts of capacity coming online globally this year, up 66% from last year. So where is that growth happening? Is it still just in Europe? They're just building more? Is there, are we seeing new markets opening up? So this year in particular will be a really big year, as you touched on, 11 gigawatts of offshore capacity coming online, which is around 30% growth on the existing fleet. The majority of that is actually coming online in China. So a lot of the projects in China are trying to rush to come online this year to get hold of some expiring subsidy that the government is offering, which ends at the end of the year. And we saw that last year in the Chinese market for onshore wind, right? That they were racing to get done by these subsidies and they put on what, like 100 gigs in three months or something like that? It was bonkers. Yeah, it was a crazy, crazy build rush. So I think the kind of rush offshore will be exactly the same and we're expecting China just to go crazy. Wow, that's really cool. That was always seemed to be a question in offshore wind is that, you know, when is China going to pick up the torch and, and carry it forward? It seems like they've, they've started. Where else are we going to start seeing growth in this sector? I think that a really great place to look for huge growth is the U.S. So right now we're currently at about 42 megawatts, which is equivalent to seven turbines in the water. And so the Biden administration earlier this year put out a target for 30 gigawatts by 2030. So you can really see that the government is really shooting for a huge amount of growth. Shooting for the stars. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're going yeah. from essentially zero to 30 gigawatts. And so if we look at how it's going to grow, we're going to see a lot of the large scale installations happening from 2024 onwards. But that only gives you about six to seven years to achieve that 30 gigawatt goal. And so what that means is the U.S. has to average about five gigawatts per year to meet that 30 gigawatt target. But you look at some place like the UK, which is one of the most mature offshore wind markets in the world, and they have an average run rate of about three gigawatts per year. So putting that into perspective, you can really see how large this goal is. But that being said, even though it's quite ambitious, it really um, sends a clear signal to developers that the US is in it and that they're in support of growing the market. What do you think? <laughs> so currently, VNF is forecasting about 26 gigawatts by 2030. So we do think that they will likely miss the target. But that being said, states already have set multiple offshore wind targets before the federal government did. So looking at the big ones, New York, 9 gigawatts by 2035, New Jersey, 7.5 gigawatts by 2035, and then you also have Massachusetts and North Carolina with pretty large targets. But you'll notice that these states set the targets for 2035 instead of 2030. And so while these states might achieve their targets, the federal government one is a little bit more ambitious. Do you think that'll drive states to, to raise their game or do you think they'll stick to the plan? Or do you think more states will come in? I guess there's a few more coastal states that could be candidates here. Well, I guess you could think of it kind of twofold. So one is that there's no... There's no set way that a state is going to achieve their target. It might happen that New York achieves nine gigawatts 
by 2032. So they hit it three years earlier. It all depends on how much capacity they procure in each solicitation that they have. But then kind of thinking about the new states point that you mentioned, North Carolina recently announced their target for eight gigawatts by 2040 and 2.8 gigawatts by 2030, I believe, earlier this year. And this is after states had already been announcing many of these targets. So North Carolina is a fairly new state in this respect. Then you can also pivot to looking at the West Coast. So California, they have a bill where they're looking to set offshore wind targets. They've walked back a few of them. Initially, they were going quite big, 10 gigawatts by 2040, but they've walked that back. And so states are definitely interested in offshore wind, newer states especially. Oregon also has a bill that they recently passed looking to procure three gigawatts by 2030. So you have a lot of different things, a lot of different elements in play here. But the moral of the story is that states are interested in offshore wind and they're shooting for the stars with these targets. That's amazing. I mean, like we were just commenting before we started recording that, Chelsea, you are an offshore wind analyst based in New York, right? And just a couple of years ago, that would have been an oxymoron to have an offshore wind analyst in, in the U.S. It's it's really a testament to, to where the industry is going, I think. Yeah, I agree. And when you look at the history of offshore wind in the U.S., right, it's really plagued by false starts, delays. You think of Cape Wind, which was initially conceived in the early 2000s and went through over a decade of trying to get permits, trying to get contracts, trying to simply get through the courts, right, and to get this project built. And it just didn't end up happening. But I think what's different now is that you know, states are on board, governments are on board, developers are interested in the market. The stars are kind of aligning for U.S. offshore wind now. So it's, I think it's ready to take off. Now, the history is sad, but, you know, I think it's kind of like a, a redemption story for U.S. offshore wind. And, you know, I, I'm ready. I'm excited to see what happens. Well, there you go. That's all you need. Let's talk a bit about how this is going to get done. Before we get into any other markets, I, I want to stick on the U.S. for just a second. So Charles Barkley always says this thing, no free pub, you know, no free publicity. There's this really fantastic podcast I've been listening to lately called Windfall from Outside In from what New Hampshire Public Media. They've been doing a great job. They did a deep dive on Cape Wind, you know, and who stands to gain and and not from from offshore wind in the US. And one thing that they talked about was how this market will be supplied. So that most of the, you know, the developers for these initial projects are coming over from Denmark. Some of the ships, you know, that they're coming over uh, to do the installations are also yeah, going to be coming from Denmark. Two questions. Is the industry globally big enough to support these ambitions in the U.S. and elsewhere? And second, if the ships are going to come over from Europe to supply U.S. projects on the East Coast... Who's going to supply the ones on the West Coast? Are they going to be able to reach, you know, and, and go through the, 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 I guess, the Panama Canal? Or I don't know. How, how is that going to work? Mark, you touched on a really interesting point. And I think that's something that a lot of people in the industry are curious about right now. So with the U.S. supply chain question, there's going to need to be massive build out, right? Like we, Imogen talked about the massive growth that we're expecting. In order to realize that, you have to have a supply chain to make that happen. And so, for example, let's let's look at the shipping question. So right now, there are already a lot of U.S. ports that are being developed to support the growing offshore wind industry. And 
In the U.S., there's also an interesting tidbit called the Jones Act, which essentially means that if you're traveling between any two points in the U.S., that ship needs to be U.S. crewed, U.S. flagged, U.S. owned, U.S. built. And so that adds a whole other dimension to the U.S. story. So there's already a wind turbine installation vessel being built by Dominion that's going to be used in the first couple of offshore wind projects in the U.S., but even then, you know, as all of these projects start cropping up and then you have the European ships that, that also need to build projects, there's going to be a, a squeeze in resources that we still need to address. In terms of the East Coast versus West Coast question, you know, I think that's, that's still up for debate. It's still up for grabs, especially when you start to think about places like Hawaii that already has some interesting offshore wind areas that the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management has identified. How are they going to build offshore wind? They're very, very far out from the U.S. mainland, but also any other any other place. So that that brings up another interesting question for a supply chain. So that really seems like an opportunity on one angle, and also a squeeze on the other. You know, but President Biden said what, a couple of weeks ago that no reason a wind t- turbine couldn't be made in Pittsburgh instead of Beijing. Right? Is are we seeing that too? Are U.S. developers stepping up for their market or? Are we seeing Japanese developers stepping up for the Japanese market? You know, like how's the how, who's winning in supply or who's set to win in supply? Yeah, I guess speaking a little bit more about the U.S. angle, developers are committing to local jobs, local manufacturing. So there's a monopile factory that's being built in New Jersey, I believe. What's a monopile factory? Sorry. Oh, yep. Let me backtrack. So when we talk about off- offshore wind, going to start that over. When we talk about offshore wind, there's two types of foundations, bottom fixed as well as floating foundations. And for bottom fixed foundations, one of the um, most widely used ones is the monopile. So think of the turbine being connected to a connector piece known as the transition piece and then connected to the monopile, which is essentially the long foundation. Think of it as like a long pole that's then hammered into the seafloor. So in that case, the monopile factory would be built in New Jersey as I mentioned. And then there's also a steel factory that was recently announced by um, US Wind, who is a developer that's planning on building a project off the coast of Maryland. So to answer your question, yes, there's there are some elements that will be built in the US, but again, it still has to be built out widely. And the earlier projects will likely depend a lot on European manufacturing and supply chain. The ships have to take as long as the projects themselves, I assume. Are there enough ships to install all of these projects? globally? Well, again, it's another interesting point. And I think I'll, I'll pivot to Imogen who maybe might know a little bit more. Sorry, I'm just I'm just going down a rabbit hole here. <laughs> this is this is fascinating, guys. Sorry. So the biggest problem with the ships is that they're not big enough to install the latest, greatest, biggest turbines. That are hitting like 15 megawatts, right? Something like that? Exactly. When they hit 15 megawatts, the big thing is they get much taller. So in order to install them, in order to lift them on top of that monopile piece that Chelsea was talking about, you have to have this big crane that does that. And the ships today essentially are not big enough to lift them high enough to actually get them on top. (laughs) Okay, so the upshot is? So the upshot is (laughs) we need to build more ships. But more more fun ships too. I don't know if you've if you've seen these ships. They're definitely worth googling. They look like kind of like robots that are stuck in the water. The way they operate is that they sail out to sites with their legs kind of stuck on the bow, and they get to the project site. They put their legs and 
push them down and put them in the seabed. And then they jack up the bow of the ship so that they're kind of like a stable loving, uh, playing field for the ship. And they lift the turbine tower on top of the foundation piece. Wow. Wow. Have you seen this? Have you, have you gone out and, you know, watched this happen in person? In my next life, Mark. In your next life, man, you should go do it. I mean, back when I was a, I, w- I used to be a geothermal analyst and there's just so much value in going out to the actual sites and seeing them build the thing. Anyway, for another day, um, and we'll do a podcast on location. How about that? Let's do that. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's talk about who's, who's paying for all this uh, for a second. So, you know, I already referenced it earlier, but again, August 2nd, we did a show, Energy Transition Fund Frenzy. And... In it, we talked about how, you know, there's been 30 billion raised in the past couple months for renewable energy or transition funds raised by asset managers, right? To invest in renewable energy projects, really kind of specifically. And my question is first, you know, do they have an appetite for offshore wind or is it just onshore? And if not, you know, who is paying for these, these offshore wind projects? Yeah, so offshore wind, I think, is a funny one because it hasn't been around for that long and it's still, in many eyes, a relatively risky asset class for many people. So having said that, the industry is maturing and we're seeing more and more projects get built. So those kind of risks are essentially being taken away. And so we're starting to see the spectrum of investors that are coming into the industry broaden. Traditionally, it used to be a kind of closed club of boutique players, your likes of Orsted, for example, who kind of took hold of the industry. Now we're seeing it kind of broaden out and we're starting to see new players like oil and gas come into the sector and start investing in the projects. So are these mostly going to be done on balance sheets rather than, you know, uh, somebody coming in and, and providing debt or, or equity to these projects? You know, because I imagine BP is just going to pay for, you know, themselves or Equinor or whatever, right? I think it will still be a combination, actually, of the two. So when we do our outlooks, we kind of look at the split between project finance and balance sheet finance. And project finance is taking more of the more of the pie as we go forward. But I think balance sheet finance will still be part of it, particularly, as you mentioned, with these big players that are starting to come in that can fund them. Can you talk about that just for a second? I mean, one thing that just caught my eye, I was looking at, where was I? LinkedIn. And I just saw a post from an, a former colleague that just said, hey, we're hiring 100 people for offshore wind at BP come, come join us. You know, I was like, wow, that's, that's quite a bit in one chunk. And my thoughts went to, oh, they must be doing that to compete with what the Norwegians with Equinor, right? Is that right? Or, or what's going on with these oil and gas players getting into this market specifically? Well, BP is a funny one because it's actually partnered up with Equinor. So I guess particularly in the US, so it's uh, maybe not as much a, yeah, a foe as a friend, but I think the, the whole transition of these oil and gas guys coming into offshore wind is the fact that they're under pressure from shareholders to kind of realign businesses, right, and invest a lot more in renewables. And they see offshore wind as a really attractive way of doing that because, as I touched on before, offshore wind brings scale. So you can buy large-scale projects or invest in large-scale projects, which brings gigawatts into your portfolio. So if you've got a gigawatt target like BP of 50 gigawatts by 2030, by developing gigawatt scale assets, you can kind of accumulate them quite quickly. Yeah, I'll, I'll also just add that there's often an element of knowledge sharing that oil and gas companies like to talk about. So if you look at building an offshore oil and gas rig, a lot of oil and gas companies see that as an opportunity to leverage knowledge that they've learned there in the offshore wind industry. And if you look at the 88 megawatt high wind Tampin project that's being built off of Norway right now, 
by Equinor, those offshore wind turbines are actually being used to power an offshore oil and gas rig. So that's an interesting tidbit there that I think that oil and gas companies also see an opportunity. Huh. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Let's close up this section and just say like, okay, I just want your take. So given what we've talked about, you know, that we're, we're saying like the industry has all these targets, you know, and growth, ambitious growth plans, all this stuff, but there's also, it seems to be potential shortage of supply. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think this is, this is a fad? Do you think it's here to stay? Do you think this growth is sustainable? Do you think, you know, these markets can reach the stars as they're, as they're trying to do? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's here to stay. I think, we're seeing a lot of ambition from government pivot towards offshore wind, which is really exciting for the sector. At the same time, when we talk about, think about just number of turbines in the water, although we're projecting large scale gigawatts, because the turbines are getting much bigger, what that actually means is you need fewer of them. So in terms of actually supply challenges of getting more turbines in the water, there's actually fewer potentially of them that would otherwise be needed. So for us, I think, yeah, we're seeing real ambition from government stepping up to set these goals. And we're also seeing more developers want to come in and develop these projects. So I guess it's good news. Yeah. I also think when we look at what happened last year in 2020 with the pandemic, we kind of saw that the supply chain was really ready to ramp up for a huge year of installations. And so at least in the in the global wind industry. And so I think that there's definitely opportunities for you know us to be surprised, for us to see supply chain really step up to the plate to realize these projects. Now it's not going to happen by magic, of course, but there's there's potential for growth and, and for it to be realized. If you didn't know what a monopile was before pressing play on this podcast, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the tech involved in offshore wind. So we'll talk about monopiles, we'll talk about floating wind, all of it. Stay with us. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So in the top, we just briefly mentioned that these turbines can hit, what, 15 megawatts a piece, right? Those are giant. Can you try to put that in perspective for us? You know, how big are these things? So a 15 megawatt turbine today is around 260 meters high from the base of the turbine to the blade tip when it's right at its top. And for reference, the Eiffel Tower is around 320 meters high. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. So we're talking pretty big. The big thing here is we expect them to get bigger. So we did some estimates at, at BNF and we expect turbines to get to around 375 meters high by 2050. Okay, so taller than the Eiffel Tower. Eiffel Tower. Exactly. Wow, and quite a bit taller. Jeez. Is that the limit? You know, is there a limit to how big these things can get? When you're looking at a 380 meter turbine, how much power output do you think that w- would you expect that to produce? So the key thing about offshore turbines is they're not really constrained in size. Mm. So unlike turbines onshore, you're kind of constrained in size because people don't like to see them. So you don't like to see a huge turbine in your backyard, but at the same time, you're kind of constrained in size because you have to transport the turbine components via road. 
which means that sometimes it's almost impossible to get them under bridges or just almost impossible to get them through various corners of roads. Whereas offshore, you just need to transport them by ship and there's less constraints there. When we're talking about a turbine that's 380 meters in height, we're suggesting that's around 35 megawatts, which is pretty big. So if you're looking at a gigawatt scale project that we're looking at at the moment, you only need around 30 turbines. I heard that in the, you know, as the, the outside in podcast I mentioned earlier is that when they had to reassess the vineyard wind project because it hit some hit some snags, the technology had advanced and they went from having to do a hundred turbines down to like sixty seven or sixty two or something like that. So bigger output, more output per turbine, fewer turbines. That's that's pretty cool. How does that impact cost? You know, are these turbines are these projects more expensive with bigger turbines or does it, does it even out? Is it cheaper? How does that work? No, that's one of the big drivers reducing the cost of offshore wind. So bigger turbines means you need fewer of them. So that means you need fewer cables, you need fewer monopiles, you need fewer, you need less time offshore constructing them. And that ultimately means that the cost of the project is lower. So bigger turbines are the key driver behind reducing cost in the industry. Can you talk about that just a bit more? Like, how does that relate to the cost of other renewable technologies like solar or onshore wind? Offshore wind is around double as expensive as an onshore wind project. But do you make up for it because the wind is blowing harder and and more often, you know, out at sea? Or how does that work? Well, the key thing is that because they are more expensive, governments have had to subsidize them. They've done that in kind of two ways. Governments are either subsidizing projects by paying developers a premium for the power that they're actually generating, or governments have subsidized the projects by paying for some of the upfront costs of the project that the developer would otherwise would have had to have paid for. Traditionally, they kind of have done this by paying for the transmission element of the project. So that's the big cable that like brings the power back to shore from the offshore wind farm. And that's actually a pretty substantive cost, particularly as these projects get further from shore. That cable can be around a third of the total capex of the project. No, how far out at sea are these projects? How long is that cable? You know, because I, I guess there's a, a question of are they an eyesore, you know, and, you know, visible from shore and all that stuff. Where do you have to put them? So projects getting built today are around 200 kilometers from shore. That's the furthest that we've seen. So pretty far. And they're getting further from shore because you can access better wind speeds there. A lot of the early projects were close to shore. Um, that's one because they were using smaller turbines. So they weren't as much of an eyesore. Um, but it was also easier to operate them close to shore, obviously. So my instant question, when you mentioned how, how far out they are from shore, is that, geez, doesn't the seafloor, isn't the seafloor like pretty, pretty far down there at that point? Like I remember one time I was in, where was I, Turks and Caicos, and you can see the continental shelf just drop off and it just goes down forever. Does that make things more expensive or does it open up for things like like floating wind? Well, Mark, you're exactly right. As projects move further out, usually you're dealing with a lot deeper waters. And so with deeper waters, you can't necessarily use a monopile or a bottom fixed foundation anymore. You do have to pivot to floating wind. And the threshold that we usually um, look to is about 60 meters or 200 feet. And so that's kind of when you think, okay, I can no longer use bottom fixed. Let me pivot to floating. And floating wind is essentially, think of it as like, a turbine on a boat. And so instead of it being fixed to a foundation that's then fixed to the seafloor, it's instead fixed to a foundation that's kind of somewhere along sea level. And then it has a counterweight 
to balance out the weight of the turbine itself. Depending on the design, it might be underneath the underneath sea level, kind of working around the surface of the sea. And then that's then attached to mooring cables, which are then anchored into the sea floor. So it's a lot more complex engineering-wise, and it's also a lot more expensive than bottom-fixed foundations. However, as Imogen mentioned, the further out that you go, you can also achieve um, greater wind speeds, more consistent wind speeds, and so there's some benefits there. So it just seems like a big job for the people that are figuring out the optimization between line losses, water depth, turbine size, basically the engineers <laughs> of, of, of figuring out the optim, optimal locations and, and specs for these projects, right? Countries around the world usually have opted for bottom fixed, right? Because it's more mature, it's cheaper, it makes sense. But then you also have some regions. So take the West Coast of the US where bottom fixed foundations are not an option. So you have that steep drop off the continental shelf that you mentioned. And if they want offshore wind, they're going to have to install floating. And so it's kind of, you know, that that narrows down the engineering question a little bit more when you when you have to ask yourself what's possible for us to do with our geography. Floating wind opens up a whole load of new markets. The west coast of the US, some sites in Japan, South Korea, some sites in Mediterranean, in France, Scotland. So floating wind is a kind of alternative technology which could potentially grow the sector much further than what bottom fix could. Okay, so I got one more question on on tech or you know project engineering. Once I was flying, <laughs> I hate to relate everything back to personal whatever, but I remember one time I was flying from what Portugal back to London, and I just noticed these giant offshore wind farms that were just taking up a lot of space. So can you comment on just like how much, I guess, sea area? I don't even know what you call it that these projects take up. Yeah, these projects can be huge. So the biggest one in the UK, which is owned by SSE, Equinor, and any, spans pretty much the area of Greater London. So that's over 1,500 kilometers squared. If you were to put that into football pitches or soccer pitches for you guys in the US, that's over 200,000 soccer pitches. And so does that mean, are we going to see, at some point, we're probably going to see a, a repowering of plants like that, right? Where you'd have bigger turbines you know, they'd take down all the old turbines and replace them with bigger ones that get the same output for with a smaller footprint. Is that right? Or is they going to leave those there forever? So turbine technology now kind of lasts around 30 years. A lot of the sites are taken for 30 years. So we'll see projects repowered on that basis. And I guess in 30 years time, we'll let you know how big turbines are at that point. There you go. Hey, I got one more question for you guys. So... You're not an offshore wind analyst. You're not any analyst at all, but you're still in offshore wind. What's the one job you choose? I'm a turbine technician, definitely. Oh, I was going to choose turbine technician. (laughs) (laughs) I'm standing on the top of this uh, 15 megawatt turbine and uh, maybe fixing the gearbox. Yeah, you just get to go out there and, and fix the turbines and you get to be on top of the world amongst these huge structures. It's kind of great. Okay, so both of you? Turbine technician. All right. I think the main thing we've learned today then, everybody, is that neither Imogen nor Chelsea are afraid of heights. Okay. Imogen, Chelsea, thanks for joining. Thanks so much, Mark. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Mark.
This week's show was produced by Ava Gonzalez Isla and edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording that expressly disclaims. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.